is from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Well, good morning. Great to be here today. Have you ever been sucked into a blame game? You know how it goes. You drove into the back of my car. Well, you pulled up so suddenly I couldn't help it. Well, you should have had your eyes on the road instead of on your phone. My, my eyes weren't on my phone at all. I was watching the, the traffic. Your brake lights are not working. What do you mean my brake lights are not working? The problem was not with my brake lights, the problem was with your driving. Don't blame me for your irresponsibility. You're the one who's responsible. There was no need for the sudden stop. Come on, Grandpa, you're getting too old to be driving the public roads. Too old? Let's see who's too old. And off it goes. That might have been your story on the way to church this morning. The blame game is this backwards and forwards between two people, each blaming the other. It can go on forever and ever and doesn't do anything constructive. People just get more aggravated, angry, self-righteous and resentful, and it always just goes downhill into ugliness. There is no end to the different versions of the blame game. I'm guessing you've been in your own, or at least watch it play out somewhere. How can we escape the blame game? How can we avoid getting into something like that that's just ugly? Well, last Sunday we saw that whether we have sinned or whether we have been sinned against, whichever side we're on, it is always our duty to step forward and to do what it takes to find reconciliation in a situation. But how do we move toward that other person or those other people? What's God's way of doing that? I hope you've seen so far from in these talks that the first thing we need to do is ask ourselves, what will please and honour God here? It's not about me saving my own neck. It's about God serving God's glory here and his purposes of love and unity amongst his people. And how do we serve God's honour? We step forward to act and avoid getting into the blame game. The answer to avoid getting into the blame game 
is firstly in Matthew 7, 1 to 5. This is the place to start. So let's look firstly at judging others and the destiny of critics. All of us as sinners are pretty good at judging others. From my observation of myself and others, men are good at it. And I've heard enough to know that women are good at it as well. Very few of us are not critics. There are no end of things that we can criticise in our world. We criticise the clothes that the female reporter is wearing on TV. We criticise the government in its handling of this or that. We criticise the opposition. We criticise the road rules. The list is endless. There are no end of things that we criticise. As members of churches, of course, it's an easy place to be a critic. The music, the flowers, the microphone, the, the kids' talk, the youth activities, what such and such a person is wearing or not wearing, the minister's hair, his prayers, his sermons. As a minister, I was once criticised about the length of the lawn at my house. And even now, some will want to criticise the way I'm talking about criticism. There's always some. Sometimes we criticise out loud. Sometimes we write uh, uh, it to the person involved. Sometimes we tell our group of friends in a hushed tone, perhaps. Sometimes we keep it in our critical heart and we just be quiet and uh, slightly condescending. However we do it, our criticism rarely rises above judgmentalism of one another. And that's what these two verses are about. Self-righteously declaring what is right and wrong about someone else. Of course, there is an important place for speaking to someone about something because we love them and we love what they're doing and we want them to grow. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our much more prevalent human inclination to arrogance in condemning one another according to our own standards. James tells us that such judgments are, by, in fact, by implication, a judgment we are making against God and his law. We know that God's law tells us to love our neighbour as ourself, but our personal self-made law says, I am free to con condemn my neighbour who dwells trustfully beside me. Taking on God's law like this is actually pretty serious business if you stop and think about it. So it is a very dangerous thing indeed for us to play judge of another person, to be the critic. And so Jesus warns us with these sobering words in verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If any of us attempted in our hearts to judge another, the warning is straightforward. We ourselves, if we entertain judging another, playing the critic, 
are entertaining judgment against ourselves. And more than that, we will be judged in the same way we judge the other person. We will be shown the same degree of mercy and kindness as we have harboured in our hearts towards the person who did that thing or wore those clothes and so on. Now, if you realise that you've done such a thing as judge another person openly, what should you do? Well, you need to repent, and I need to repent. And an apology is in order if we've said something. See me if you'd like help to work out how to do a good apology. What if it's been a secret thing in your heart? You haven't said anything, but what you've thought about someone else has affected the way you've treated them, maybe kept you at a distance, maybe made you slightly patronising. Again, an apology is in order. We shouldn't treat each other like that. Confess your sins to them. Do the right thing. And repent in your heart from ever doing such a thing again. And that brings us famously to the famously misunderstood log and speck in verses 3 to 5. Some people say this is a complete, see, this is a completely separate saying of Jesus. They separate it from the bit before about judging one another. But that's not the case. Jesus is continuing to talk about judging others. And he says something shocking. Do you see it? Sometimes we're so familiar with these words that we don't see the outrageous nature of them. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? He calls the fault we see in that other person a mere speck of sawdust, a tiny little speck that may be in the corner of their eye. And he says, we, the judge, have a huge plank, a massive blockage, as the older versions, versions have it, a great log in our eye. Now think about that. What is he saying? Anyone can see that the major fault is with that other person and what they have done. What have I done? Surely, at best, I'm just the speck person, but Jesus is saying, I've got a massive log in my eye. The big error is surely with that person who designed the road rules. That, the big error is with the person who dressed inappropriately, by my estimate, in church. The big error is with the minister for preaching such long, dull sermons. Of course, you wouldn't think that about my sermons, I'm sure. The big problem is with Putin, isn't it? Isn't he got the log? Surely they have the logs, whereas we have not made anything like such an error. Surely I only have a mere speck in my eye by comparison. 
But Jesus says, no. That person may have a little speck, and it is only a little speck to you, but you, I, have a massive log in my own eye. What? Really? Jesus is shocking us into perspective. And why? Why do I always, according to Jesus, in every situation, every time, have the log in my eye? And why is it the other person only ever has a speck? Have you ever pondered that? There are several things going on. Firstly, we've been fooling ourselves when we carried on as if dealing with the person in front of me was just a horizontal human matter. It's not. It's not just me and that person. The Sermon on the Mount is all about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And the fundamental truth is that a disciple of Jesus conducts himself or herself as if their whole life is lived under the gaze of God in all his holiness. Our first consideration as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ is not horizontal, but vertical. God as Lord of the disciples' life God is our Lord, not ourselves, not the other person, not the world. We live lives firstly before God and secondly before other people. Let me say that again. We live lives firstly before the living God and only secondly before other people. And if nothing else, we tremble in the knowledge that our holy God will judge us and give us exactly what we deserve. And so, secondly, we have a log because of all the sin that we are carrying in our lives from our share in Adam's guilt that we were born with to every single infraction of God's word in our life from beginning to end, both the actions, the words, and the thoughts that ran through our heads. Can you ever try to weigh up how much sin that might be? All of it is our own responsibility. And our load, it is our death before the living God. It is a massive, massive log-like debt, not a speck-like debt. We truly do have a log's worth in our eye. The parable of the unmerciful servant is coming up next week. And uh, someone else is preaching that. 
But do you remember in that parable of the unmerciful servant how such a massive debt the servant owed and it was all forgiven him? And yet he himself was without mercy to his fellow servant who owed him just a tiny sum by comparison. Jesus is reminding us of something very much like that here in Matthew 7. The log is not about distorting our vision, which is the way most people tend to read this. That makes uh, less sense if you think that the other person's got the scent, the speck, and so therefore, therefore they must be able to see more clearly. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's about the size of our own guilt. We have our own vast, unpayable debt to God that we are responsible for. And yet we criticise the weather lady on TV because of her fashion sense. Or we criticise the person who did the prayers or did the flowers or whatever it might be. And so Jesus calls us hypocrites. Look at verse 4. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank, a log, in your own eye? You hypocrite. And so we are. We ourselves are, are unbelievably guilty. And yet in our pride we see that we can judge our neighbour. But does that mean we are never to talk to somebody else about their error or mistake? Not at all. Let's look at what Jesus means by seeing clearly in verse 5. In verse 5, you hypocrites, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Before we can see clearly enough to take the speck out of our brother or sister's eye, we must first remove the massive log from our own eye. How do we move the massive debt of our sin? How do we move all our responsibility and guilt? How is that even possible? And thinking about that question has led some people to conclude that we have no place of offering any kind of uh, judgment about someone else or to help someone else deal with their issue and what they have done or are doing. It's very tempting to take that view. It's easy to keep our head down. But that is not what Jesus means. And it would not be right to stay quiet 
before our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to be church fellowship that encourages and rebukes and corrects and strengthens one another to keep walking, to turn away from sin and to live for Christ. What then are we to do? Well, firstly, we are to face up to how sinful we are. Now, I'm aware that some might think, David, can't you be a bit more positive? Can't you be a bit kinder? But we won't see the good news until we really face up to the bad news. Would we like a doctor to tell us only good news when in fact we have a malignant cancer? No, we want him to tell us the truth. We need to face up to the reality. And in the same way, we need to face up to our sinfulness. We must not whitewash ourselves and our sin and pretend that we are better than we really are. Do you remember that's what the Pharisees did? They dressed themselves in much religious garb and sought, presented themselves as defenders of the truth. Do you remember what Jesus called them? Whitewashed tombs. No, we must own our sin fully. And secondly, therefore, we must see how great, this is the good news, how great the mercy and the goodness of God is that he has forgiven my debt, all of that debt, that great enormous log of debt has been forgiven me through the giving of his own son to take it all to the cross for me. Seeing my sin for what it truly is enables me to see the magnificence of the cross and the love of Jesus Christ for someone as wretched as me. The Puritans used to say that it is only in the deep, deep valleys of my sin that I say, see the beauty and the grandeur of the mountain peaks of Christ's loving work. And so it is only when we own the seriousness, the sinfulness of our sin that we get a right perspective on ourselves and the other person. Truly seeing and grasping in our heart how great a log we have, the terrible sinfulness of all of our sin, it humbles us, doesn't it? It is the only thing that puts away our judgmental self-righteousness. So when we now look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we contemplate the grace of God and the mercy of God to such a person as me.
all we can do is overflow with thankfulness at his kindness to us in Christ. And if we do need to talk to somebody about some speck that is in their eye, we approach them with deep humility because I am no better and with compassion because here is a fellow sinner struggling with the same struggles against sin that I have. And with kindness, since we know how precious the kindness and gentleness of God has been to us. And that is what Jesus means by seeing clearly. Seeing my own unworthiness and all that God has done for me, I look now and come to them compassionately. And that changes the whole dynamic of the way I speak to this person. It completely changes the tone from self-righteousness to loving kindness. But all of that is difficult to do, especially in conflict. It's difficult because we have, all of us, this is our sinfulness, we have such stubborn hearts. We are so enmeshed in the world, we keep looking at ourselves and our circumstances in a worldly way. We are stuck in this horizontal mode. So in real life, how do we do this? How do we own our log? and deal compassionately with others. In the, how do we find the courage for it? Well, in the purely horizontal world, where there is really no God, just people, and where we must survive by our own wits in this conflict situation, what do we do? Well, we think of strategy who has the upper hand in this situation, who has the power, how can I get more power, how can I protect myself, how can I save my dignity here? And in such a world, admitting we are wrong is the last thing we want to do. That would expose us completely. It would be, make me vulnerable to them. I would be weakened in this to and fro, this blame game. And all of that is just instinctive and comes from our anxious fear of living in a world without God, in this horizontal world, with this instinct of self-protection. So what can we do? The answer is to get perspective. This little parable is all about perspective. To remind our hearts that we are in a vertical world first. Before we are in this horizontal world, we are firstly in a vertical world. A world where God is our God. And so we need to talk to our hearts and our minds 
about this constantly. I'm in God's world. I'm God's servant and responsible to him first in this situation. How can I honour God by my words and by my actions here? Secondly, we remind ourselves that while we were once of this world and have great sin on our account, now God has redeemed me. He's brought me out of that horizontal darkness and into the glory of this vertical world, God's world, where I am forgiven everything at great cost to God. And I am secure now in his loving hands. I am safe. No matter what happens to me in this world, nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so I can have complete confidence in God and approach the conflict as someone who is absolutely secure for all eternity. And then I can trust God because I'm secure and do what is right by confessing my own wrong in this particular situation before humbly and gently raising anything I feel needs to be raised about them. And you know, the surprisingly wonderful news, which is a complete surprise to us in our fear and anxiety, the surprisingly wonderful news is that often, not always, but often, as we own up to our wrong humbly and genuinely, the other person will often own up to their wrong as well. It's a beautiful thing. And so in the example we started with, the car accident scene, well, there's a bit of damage to my car. Well, you pulled up so suddenly I just couldn't stop. You're right, I did pull up really quickly, I'm sorry. The car in front of me stopped unexpectedly. I had to jam on the brakes. I can understand why you couldn't stop. Yes, so what are you gonna do about the damage to my car? Well, let's call the police as we should and clear the road and exchange details. The insurers will work everything out, I'm sure. Well, that sounds reasonable. Let's do that. And so we've escaped the blame game. Let's pray. Father, please grant us great humility to see the log in our own eye. Forgive us so much for all that we have done in judging and criticising others while parading ourselves in a self-righteous way. Forgive us, Lord. We struggle with our pride and our arrogance. Please help us to see our sin and how sinful our sin is 
And help us, Father, to behold the cross of Jesus with a new joy and wonder. And help us to be different people who approach others not with arrogant, angry pride, but humbly and gently and kindly as you have dealt with us. And we pray that we might be an agent for peace like this in every conflict we face. In Jesus' name, amen.